Well, this morning, we're going to turn our attention to uh, a time in God's Word, and, and I want to say again, welcome to those of you who are, are maybe visiting for the first time virtually with us, who may be checking us out still uh, online. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, thank you for taking the time yet again to, to worship with us today. And uh, uh, today is yet another Sunday where we find ourselves gathering digitally and virtually. And if you're on the live chat feed right now, I encourage you, just say hello. Say hello. If you're visiting with us, let us know you're here. Say hello. We'd love to welcome you. Uh, let's not have crickets on that live chat feed this morning, but let's actually uh, let's actually have some, some conversation on there and commenting uh, some hearts flying up as you hit that button. And uh, just not for me, but just for, for the body of Christ being together because uh, this is our reality right now. We gathered this way. We're not able to see each other face to face. So we want to encourage one another. We want to, to even right now digitally encourage one another. And so um, today we're going to move forward in our series in 1 Corinthians. Last week, Mark preached an amazingly powerful message on how to fight sin and how to look to the past helps us, looking to the past helps us uh, fight sin and fight temptation and sin. And so I, I was deeply encouraged when I came away uh, from that time. And I know from our time on the call with our missional community afterwards that many of us were encouraged and impacted by that time because that was the sentiment that, that many of you shared. And, uh, and so we press on today with this theme, how to fight sin. And specifically today, we're looking at uh, the way we do that is we look to God. We look to Christ Jesus. That's how we fight sin. And today, we're considering how we're, when we're in the midst of temptation and really in the throes of the fight and the waves of temptation, we can look to God and He provides what we need. Let's turn to our text today, and it's just one verse. It's not very long. Uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. Turn there with me this morning. I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Bible as always, which is uh, the version that we have adopted. Uh, so if you don't have a hard copy or a digital copy there where you are, have no fear. Uh, there is going to be multiple versions appearing on your screen in the chat feed and all around. Uh, we'll take care of that for you today. So looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, chapter 10 verse 13, this is what it says. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. May God bless the reading of his word today. Well, over the last couple of months, we've been walking through 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. Uh, you may remember that if you've been with us. And we've seen that this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And it's in response to a letter that the church in Corinth wrote to the Apostle Paul with some questions. They were dealing with some issues. They needed some wisdom. And so they wrote to Paul, who had invested in them previously, and they needed help. So Paul's writing this not just to say, hello, hey, how are you doing, checking in, but with some specific responses to the things they've asked. And you may remember that, this, uh, that, that what was prevalent in the city of Corinth, we heard several weeks ago, was the practice of eating meat 
that had been sacrificed to idols. And that's where we started in chapter 8. Chapter 8 begins with that thought that there were all these temples of pagan worship around the city of Corinth, and there were tons and loads and loads of sacrifices to those idols and different things going on in the temple. And then the leftover meat would be sold to the local butcher shop. So this was a prevalent practice throughout the city. And many historians, many commentators would say that most of the meat available in that day were coming from these places. So this question of should we eat meat sacrificed to idols that started this whole conversation, it wasn't just a random question. It dealt with the heart of life. And not just with the practicalities of what they ate each day, but also how this church community presented their lives to a watching world around them. How do they live out their witness to Christ before the rest of the city? And this led the Apostle Paul to give them some insight on how to approach various questions that what do you do when, when Scripture is not explicit about something, when it's not just written out in black and white, what do you do? When Scripture doesn't speak to it directly, how do you answer it? How do you answer the question? How do you, what's the process by which you begin to come to some kind of answer? And from what we have seen from these amazing principles of how, of, that Paul unpacks, he begins just not to dive in just this practical stuff, but to, to expand it a bit and take the opportunity to say, there's some larger principles at play within body life, within how we relate to the rest of the body of Christ. And it goes to things like, being willing to give up some rights for the rest of the body. How, am, I, am I willing to love one another sacrificially? Am I willing to lay down some things, some preferences that I have for the good of the rest of the body of Christ? And ultimately, we saw that we run. You know, we saw that, that, that analogy of running the race and carrying on the games, boxing it, that we perform, we run for an audience of one, for God. Not for others around us, but for God. And, and coming away from this discussion, this section, Paul tacks on chapter 10 onto this answer as if that wasn't enough great content for us. And what we see is Paul taking it yet another, another step in this discussion as he addresses not just a life of sacrifice for the rest of the body, but a life that is continually fighting against sin and temptation. And if you remember from last week, Mark was referencing our promo graphics of, of the boxing gloves that are hanging there. And it's such a graphic, vivid image that paints such a great picture for us. But I thought about, I, th I thought that he had a great quote and, and it popped up in our chat last week and, and you could like it, you could put, you know, press that heart button. And this was Mark's quote. He said, when you see that picture of the boxing gloves, the boxing gloves being a picture of how it is we should fight sin, understand today that the boxing gloves don't belong to you. They belong to Jesus. You and I have been called to fight against sin and to fight through temptation, but not in our own strength. God has equipped us and has enabled us to persevere in this fight. And that's what our text is talking about today in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. And let's just read it. It's so short, we can do this, so we can have the time. Let's read it one more time. It says, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. 
But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Make no mistake today. It is normal. It's normal for every single follower of Jesus to experience temptation. This has been going on since the beginning of time, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Every one of us find ourselves grappling with desires that want and, and, and crave things that are apart from what God wants. But experiencing temptation is not wrong in and of itself. Being tempted is not wrong, it's normal. It's the giving in to those temptations where we find we have entered into sin. And remember, our working definition of sin, that we go back to Holiday Club from last summer, sin is anything we think, we say, or we do that goes against God. Sin is anything we think, we say, we do that goes against God. Uh, the 19th and 20th century American evangelist, Billy Sunday, said it this way, Temptation is the devil looking through the keyhole. Yielding is opening the door and letting him in. I thought that was very poignant today. Temptation is as common to the human experience as eating and breathing are. It happens to everyone, and it happens frequently. We all experience it in our lives. The question is not whether or not you experience it. Instead, it's how you respond to it. Let's break it down, what we're talking about this morning, because I believe this is true, I know this is true, but let's break this down from Scripture today. Turn with me all the way back in Scripture to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 3, where things first went off the rails in human history to our very first parents in the Garden of Eden. Uh, things were really good. Things were really perfect. There was nothing else going on, no evil in the world, and then Genesis 3 happens. Uh, read this with me, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. In the beginning of all things, everything was perfect. We talk about this, we've talked about the three circles, that in the beginning, God had a perfect design. And in God's perfect design, there was no pain, there was no suffering, there were no broken relationships. Nothing in this world was broken until Genesis 3. And that's the context for this passage. When the deceiver, Satan, 
came to Adam and Eve. And for the very first time in human history, we see temptation becomes a problem. The consequences of their giving into this temptation had catastrophic repercussions for the whole world, for the rest of history. Satan, in the form of a serpent, came to them and begins posing trick questions to them. In verse 2, we see that he first speaks to Eve, but in verse 6, we find out that Eve wasn't alone. No, Adam was there. He was passively watching this conversation play out. Adam lets all of this unfold, never stepping in, never standing up for what he personally heard God Almighty say directly to him. There was a process to get Adam and Eve from going about their business all the way to eating the fruit. And and even in this short period, we see playing out in Genesis 3, there was a progression that happened within their hearts. And and let's just think through this passage a bit, and you're going to see what I mean. Falling into temptation, falling into temptation in our hearts most often begins with us questioning God. That's what happens here in our passage. Satan starts off in verse 2 by saying, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And that's how temptation arises in our hearts. Our rebellious nature or the deceiver or, or a combination of both of those begins to ask the same question about something in our life. Did God really say blank? And maybe it isn't that explicit when you when you when you look when you're going through things, but when you look back on those times when we fall, the initial temptation is to doubt something of God. It begins with doubt about God. Here in this passage, Satan speaks lies which tempts these two people not only to doubt God's words, but his very motives. Temptation is most often one or a combination of three basic questions about God. It's it's not as complicated as we make it out to be a lot of times. It's usually one of three or a combination of three questions that we have about God. Number one is the temptation to disbelieve God. Here, in this moment, Adam and Eve's temptation is to to question the truthfulness of God, to, to believe that God doesn't really have their best interests and heart. Disbelieving God, his character, his intentions, his word, that's one way to ensure falling into sin. So do you, find, do you find yourself doing that? Are you prone to doubt that God is true? That he isn't actually telling us the truth about something? Is that where you are today? Do you find that to be a struggle? Secondly, Adam and Eve are tempted to believe that they knew better than God did. The temptation to believe that our way is better than God's way, that that seems to be an ever-constant, present struggle in our lives. Since the garden, every single one of us continually struggle with this one. And for some strange reason, we think that our limited, finite view of things is better than the eternal one, the infinite one, that his, his view, who, who sees all things. Why do we think that our finite, limited view is better than his view? But we do, don't we? I mean, every day we're tempted to think that. And this is the root of where pride comes in. The temptation is to make little of God and to make much 
of us. Giving in to this is to forget how immense God is and to make him smaller in our hearts and our minds than he actually is. Is that an issue in your life? Can you see where you've been susceptible to falling into this trap? I find myself constantly fighting with this one. And it's a very dangerous ground to find yourself thinking you know better than the God of the universe. That is lunacy, yet it's something we struggle with. Thirdly, Adam and Eve are tempted to act, they're, they're tempted to act as God, the God of their lives, instead of submitting to the God of the universe, the one true God. And, and this really is the pinnacle, isn't it? it? It strays right into idolatry, idolatry itself, idolatry of self. And ironically, this is the one that Scripture tells us that got Satan banished from heaven, from the presence of God. Satan, Scripture tells us, originally Satan was an angel, but he became puffed up with pride. And he became delusional to the point that he conspired to overthrow Almighty God, which, by the way, was not really even an, an attempt. That's how feeble it was. Uh, and it's the same trap that, that, he, that he fell into that he sets for Adam and Eve, and then he's been setting for humanity ever since. These three things are exactly what Paul is referring to in our passage in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, when he says, all temptation is common. Every, there, there, there's a commonality of temptation that he's talking about. And, and it's not... It's not about the, all of our circumstances being the same. Now, I've been in conversation with people before where they've referenced, responded to this verse or, or to another where, where Jesus, it says that Jesus knows our temptations, that he knows every struggle that we go through. And, and, and they push back on that because they say, how, how could Jesus have gone through what I've gone through? He didn't have the technology. He didn't have this. Or, or how, do, you know, how, how could this be like my life? And I just want to stop today because the, the accurate way to think about this is not about circumstances. The wrong assumption is that this is referring to circumstances. But this verse is actually talking about the root of temptation. And at its root, temptation is a surrendering to what I want and what I think is best over what God wants and what he thinks is best. And that can play out in a whole lot of different circumstances and a whole lot of situations in a whole lot of different lives. But what we see happening here in the beginning, Adam and Eve fell into this trap because they wanted to be like God. Ultimately, they believed each of these three lives. One, that God wasn't telling them the truth. Well, maybe maybe. We could get wisdom if we ate this tree. Maybe we could be like God. He said not to eat it, but maybe he is holding something back from us. Secondly, that they knew better than God. The fact that they ate the truth demonstrates that they thought they knew better than God when God explicitly said, don't eat from this fruit or you will die. It must not be true. I know better than God. I'll eat. It'll be fine. I'll eat this fruit. Thirdly, that they were better suited at being God of their lives than the one true God is. I want what I want. I'm better suited to make that decision than God is. I know what's best for me. How can God know? I'm me. I know me. Those are all lies from the evil one. As a result of this, they, Adam and Eve faced absolutely 
catastrophic consequences that permeated and that rang out into the rest of the world for the rest of human history. But look back at our main passage today, the 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 13 says, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. But God is faithful. Turn with me to the New Testament now, to Luke chapter 4. And, and this is the account of Jesus being uh, faced with immense temptation out in the wilderness. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 say, Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. Here we see that Jesus is approached by Satan and he's tempted as well. And the fact that we are tempted is normal and is common. What's key is how we respond to those moments. We see, we know it's normal, we know it's common because Jesus faced temptation himself. And, and let me say this, often those moments of temptation, they come when we are at our most effective. When we're working hard, we're being obedient, we're being faithful, just after some really effective seasons of life, of going deep in relationship with God, that's when we see temptations arise most often. What did Luke 4 just say? Jesus fasted for 40 days, supernaturally going without food, going without water for 40 days. I don't know about you, but if I go a day or two without food, uh, I, I'm not necessarily, my wife could attest to this, I'm not always the most pleasant person to be around. You know, I'm struggling. I, I, I'm just not doing well. Jesus spent more than a month in concentrated prayer. That in and of itself blows my mind, but the fact that he was somehow able supernaturally to go without food, to go without water, and to vote everything of his being to a time of prayer, that is un believable. It's not before this, it's not during this, but it's after this amazing experience with God, with the Father, that Satan then arrives to tempt him. But check this out. Just before this passage, something amazing had happened. Luke chapter 3 and both Matthew 3 give more details about this and and it's, it's about the account of Jesus' baptism. Jesus goes and he's baptized by John the Baptist as an act of obedience to God. And when he goes into the water, the Bible literally says that the heavens are opened up and that the heavens are parted, that the Spirit of God in the form of a dove descends from heaven and falls upon Jesus. And if that's not crazy enough, it says that everyone around heard the audible voice of the Father Say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is an amazingly unique moment in history where we see all three members of, of the Trinity right there on display. I mean, there's an audience witnessing all of this. The heavens are literally opening and crazy stuff ensues. I mean, the actual voice of God is heard by the people. Say, this is my son in whom I love. I would imagine that following that were some pretty amazing moments of worship. 
You know, we've been singing about worshiping before the throne of God. I would imagine some people knelt just overwhelmed by what they'd experienced in awe of who God was and is. And it's after this moment when Jesus could have easily, rightly so, hearing his father audibly say before this audience, this is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. What an affirmation. What confidence that gives. And Jesus could have taken that confidence and gone out into the wilderness and lived in that confidence. Jesus coming off of this, he's propelled into the wilderness. He spends this time in prayer. And and, and what we see in verse three is that the devil then said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, it's written, man must not live on bread alone. So he took him up and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it's been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. And after the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a while. Now, we could spend weeks on the significance of each one of these temptations as well as each of these responses that Jesus gives. But know this, Jesus Christ himself faced the same temptations that are common to all of us. He faced the temptation to doubt God and to think that he knew what was best, to to give in to what he wanted instead of what God wanted. I, I mean, we just saw where the passage says Jesus is hungry And I mean, it indicates in in the original language that not just he's hungry, like he needs a snack, but like he's absolutely famished. He's desperately in need of food. And and it would have been easy to give in to that hunger and, and believe that his way was better than God's way. In those moments, when you're faced with temptation, steady your heart. Remember who God is in those moments. Because if you can remember that in those first few moments, it sets the tone for the rest of those moments of temptation. Remember who God actually is and then who you are in comparison. Look at how Jesus did this. He answers the tempter by quoting from the scriptures. Verse four says, but Jesus answered him, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. Now, in each of these scenarios, the answer for Jesus is not for him to answer for himself, even though Jesus could have. But instead, Jesus, in his, in his grace to us, provides us with a blueprint. I mean, he goes on there, the word of God, which he had hidden in his heart, comes out of him as a response. What you put in your heart will come out of you. I mean, I'll just say that one more time. What you put in your heart, it will 
come out of you. Puritan John Owen, he, he put it this way, temptations and occasions put nothing into a man, but only draw out what was in him before. Jesus didn't say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me go get my copy of the scripture and look up a good passage to, to combat this. Uh, he wasn't doing Bible drill on the scroll, I mean, scrolls in that day. No, instantly, because it was in his heart, the scripture comes out of his mouth. It comes flying out of his mouth because that was the overflow of his heart. Notice that Jesus doesn't try and reason it out with Satan there. He doesn't have a philosophical or a theological conversation. But that's not what we saw in Genesis 3, was it? I mean, Adam and Eve get into a debate about personal experience. Well, what did God actually say? Well, let's, let's think about this and go back to what God actually said. Did, uh, well, maybe even if we even touch it, God didn't say touch. They got into a conversation with the tempter, with the deceiver, and they end up failing and falling Jesus, he speaks scripture, and he, he's holding fast to its truth, even though it went against his immediate desire for food. It's crazy to me that Satan tries the same approach with Jesus as he did with Adam and Eve. As you read through this account in Luke 4, in the final temptation of the passage, this is what Satan says down in verse 9. It says, It took him up to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and it said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Verse 10, for it is written. And he begins to quote the scriptures to Jesus. He will give his angels charge, orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. For it is written. What was Satan's method for attacking Jesus? Satan used the scriptures on Jesus. But he did the same thing in the garden. He used the words of God, which this is our written revelation, the word of God. Adam and Eve had heard the command of God. Adam had heard it directly. Did God say you could eat from any trees? Did God really say that? Did the scriptures really say that? And the, the evil one does the same exact thing, maybe even subtly to us. Did God really say you couldn't even look at another man or another woman? I mean, isn't it okay as long as you don't act on it? Did God really say blank about that? It won't really hurt anyone else if you just compromise a little bit. It's just you. What you do don't, doesn't affect others. Did God really say? Your answer and my answer to that statement decides whether or not we stand in victory with Christ or whether we fall in sin. Jesus followed it up by remaining resolved, and he's quoting scripture back to the deceiver, and look at what happened next in verse 13. Verse 13 says, after the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. The devil left. The temptation subsided. Jesus' victory in this moment, it did a couple of things for us. First, it shows us that victory is possible. You do not have to give in to temptation. Victory is possible. 
He, he shows us that God is actually faithful, like our 1 Corinthians 10, 13 passage says. He's given us his word to cherish and to hide in our hearts. The scripture brings the dose of reality and the dose of perspective that we need when our feeble human hearts are flailing and on the verge of giving in to temptation. But Jesus' victory here, it also proves something else for us. Secondly, it proves that he is the better Adam. Jesus didn't give in, not in this moment or in any other. Notice that Satan didn't permanently leave. What did verse 13 said? It said that he left him for a time. The temptations were always there in Jesus' life. This wasn't the only moment that he was tempted. They happened all the way up to the cross. You see him in the garden, agonizing over the decision of whether or not to go through in his flesh. God, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass from me. But what did he do? He stayed resolved. But, Lord, not my will, let your will be done. Jesus never gave in. He was the better Adam for us, which enabled him to live perfectly and then to be the perfect substitute for me and for you. He was able to die in our place because of how he responded in the wilderness. He was able to rise from the grave in victory over death because of his victory in the wilderness. What might God want to do in your life in the days ahead because of how he's leading you to victory today? Victory today could very well be the key to fruitful ministry tomorrow. Don't believe victory isn't possible. Jesus proves that victory is possible. And, and in doing that, he proved our passage to be true. Let's look back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation... He will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. We see the truth of that verse on full display for us as we look at the life of Jesus. Jesus proved to us that God is faithful. And he's faithful in the two ways that I mentioned. One, he is faithful in giving us his word. He provides what we need to fight temptation. Secondly, he gave us the son who conquered sin for us. I once heard John Piper, author, pastor, theologian, say that for the follower of Jesus, the only sin that has power over us is purchased sin that we allow to have power over us, that Christ on the cross broke the curse of sin and made it possible for us to live in victory. Brothers and sisters, don't give in to temptation and allow sin that's already been purchased on the cross of Christ to have power over you. You and I can stand in victory in the midst of temptation. Go back to what Mark said last week. Who is doing the fighting for us, though? Is it us and just trying to grunt it out and do the best we can in our own strength? No, it's, it's Christ Jesus. We saw in Luke 4 that Jesus fought and was perfect for us. He is the better Adam. And because of that, he's given you everything and me everything that we need to be victorious in this fight. Adam and Eve fought in their own strength and they lost. God has given us Christ, who's already proven victorious over sin. So there is no temptation that you will ever face that will be too much for you. 
not because of how strong you are or how good you are or what you try to do to earn favor with God, but because of the greatness and the majesty of Christ Jesus, the one who purchased our sin and broke its power over us. God has given you victory in Christ. In our day-to-day, we can live we can live this out by using two tools that he's given us. And these are powerful tools if we will choose to use them to face the fight of temptation. And we've already seen them in the, in the two passages. They're, they're not mysterious. They're on full display for us. First, he's given us his word. And right now in this moment, don't give in to the temptation of checking out because we say this a lot, because we do say this a lot. And we say this a lot because it's the truth. Yes, we say it's a lot, but it's important. We can't overstate how important it is. The scripture is the written revelation of Almighty God given to us from God. It reveals who God is. It reveals his ways. It reveals his desires. And it reveals his commands for us. But it also reveals who we are in comparison to who God is. It provides a very clear parameter for our lives, which is incredibly helpful as we live in a culture whose moral compass is ever shifting. It brings perspective while we're constantly having our perspectives reshaped by our circumstances. And it maintains the truth when society and our own fallen hearts want to make it subjective. Put it in your heart. Read it. Digest it. Pray through it. Meditate on it memorize it. The more it's on your heart, the more it affects everything about your life. It brings your thoughts into alignment with God's thoughts. It checks your desires that want to go away from God. I think about that old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. The scripture is the key to the answer to that prayer. It checks us. It provides the bedrock foundation to stand on in the middle of the storm, and the storm surges of temptation. Don't neglect God's word. Secondly, God has given you community and the family of faith. Christ had to endure those temptations alone. And the power of the Spirit, he had to do that so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for us. But when you look back at the garden, God created the first people to live together in community. It's actually in the context of community that temptation first arises. But where Adam and Eve failed, you and I have the opportunity to succeed. From the beginning, we were meant to live life in community with one another. In Christ, that bond of community means that we are family in Christ. Therefore, if we're living life with others who are putting God's words in their heart as well, then we have the opportunity to share these burdens with one another. And if you're fighting with the word and you're living life with others who do the same, you and I can see victory as something that's a norm instead of the exception. And here's here's the mistake we fall into as fallen people. We often make this mistake. Instead of gravitating towards community when temptation arises, we hide from it. We're afraid of it. We're ashamed of what might be going on in our lives. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. 
Their response to, fa- to falling was to hide, was to try to cover up their own sin by sowing fig leaves to hide from God. That's what we do in community. When we struggle, we tend to buy into the lies that bring shame and that bring fear. Fear that we won't be accepted anymore or or that we're not going to be included in the family of faith anymore because of our struggles. But that is yet another lie from the evil one. Instead of withdrawing, lean into accountability with one another. Take the leap. Muster up enough courage to trust others. Others who are not perfect, by the way, but who are struggling just like you are. When we bring our struggles into the light, they lose their power over us that we allow them to have. This is such a powerful tool, and I really can't understate how important it is. And there is something mysteriously amazing about a group of people who hide God's word in their hearts and then live life together with it as their foundation. The truth of the word is sufficient for us on its own. But God's extra gift of having a visible picture of people applying that truth to their lives, living a life before us and with us, what a gift. Not only can we read the word, but we see it on on living display, the truth applied to life. You are not alone today. Please hear me say that. You are not alone in the struggle with temptation. Christ has made a way for you to have fellowship with God and to always have his presence with you. But God in his grace has given you and has given me the gift of brothers and sisters, of having a local church who love you, who love me, and who are willing to live life in such a way that we encourage one another, we edify one another, we build one another up, we pick one another up through every circumstance. We walk through life together. And when we understand that, we understand why Paul put verse 13 here of 1 Corinthians 10 after he's been talking about how to live well with the body of Christ, how to love the body of Christ well, how to sacrifice for the body of Christ. Laying down our lives, laying down our rights for one another leads to deep relationships. Deep relationships lead to a community who's committed not just to making much of God, but to making much of God together. Are you taking advantage of these two tools? Are you putting God's word in your heart? What you put in will come out. We can't expect to stand firm in Christ if we aren't putting the truth of Christ in our hearts. Are you living life with your church family? Are you willing to live life with your community in such a way that you're honest about your life? Do you hold the truth back? Do you connect only to a level that's comfortable but refrain from actually letting your church family see who you really are? Have you pursued biblical accountability where honesty and love and encouragement are the driving force of the relationship? In our temptation, let's look to Christ. He is the better Adam. This week, uh, I read a story that I thought was fitting as we think about this struggle and we think about this passage of Scripture. The, uh, the final eruption of Mount St. Helens 
in May of 1980 was not a sudden event. Uh, for two months prior to the massive blast, uh, the most deadly and destructive volcanic blast in American history, earthquakes and a volcanic activity signaled that a major event was on its way. Uh, authorities had plenty of time to warn people, to sound the alarm, to try to evacuate people. Yet, despite the seriousness of the threat, some people just chose to disregard the warnings. Probably the best known of those uh, is the story of a man named Harry Randall Truman. And the 83-year-old man was the owner and caretaker of Mount St. Helens Lodge in Salt Lake, in Spirit Lake, sorry. He had survived the sinking of his troop ship by a German submarine off the coast of Ireland during World War I, and he was not about to leave just because scientists thought it might not be safe. Truman told reporters, I don't have any idea whether it will blow, but I don't believe it to the point that I'm going to pack up everything. On May 18, 1980, Truman and his lodge were buried beneath 100 feet of mud and debris, and his body was never found. It is foolish to recognize danger, the danger of temptation, and to think that it, you'll somehow be exempt from the consequences if you linger there, just living in it. If we believe Scripture's warnings concerning temptation, we have to flee. Make no, make no mistake, temptations will come throughout our lives. In J.C. Ryle's commentary on, uh, on Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, he put it this way, We must not count temptation a strange thing. The disciple is not greater than his master, nor the servant than his Lord. If Satan came to Christ, he will also come to Christians. Temptations are sure to come. Let us live in such a way that we're prepared when they do. God's desire for you and for me is to walk in victory. He went to great lengths to, to provide the way for that victory through sending Jesus. Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection ensured that victory for us. So today, man, maybe you're hearing all this and it makes you have some questions. Maybe you feel your heart pounding a little harder today because this is hitting home for you. Maybe you recognize you're not actually right with God. You've never actually trusted in Jesus as the way to God. Maybe you feel the weight of that rebellion against God in your life. I would simply ask the question, have you ever trusted that Jesus is the way to God for you? like I've been talking about this morning, that he came and lived a perfect life, that he died a, a death that was a substitutionary death, and then he rose again in victory. Jesus never once gave in to temptation. He never once rebelled against God, which made him the perfect sacrifice. The Bible tells us that if we'll trust that that's true, and not just trust on a cognitive mental level, but actually with our life, trust that that's true and turn away from our way to God's ways, that we'll be made right with God. We'll be made family with God. You've heard that this morning. Maybe you want to talk to somebody about that. Maybe you have questions. Maybe you'd like prayer. There's someone, if you're on the live feed right now, there's someone waiting to talk to you who would love to pray with you, who would love just to, to listen to what you have to say. 
click on that prayer button, click on that raise hand button. They would love to do that now. But maybe today uh, you hear all of this and you recognize, you know what? I'm not fighting that fight with temptation very well. I urge you, take up those two tools. Commit yourself to God's word. Not as a religious right or a checklist kind of thing or just a burden of I've got to do this to tick all the boxes, but as the source of life that it is, as the revealing of who God is, that it is. He's calling us today to do that. Today, I urge you to connect with your local church. Connect with us. We would love for you to go deeper in fellowship with us. Connect to a missional community if you haven't already. If you need to know, if you want to know how to do that, connect with us on social media or email us. We would love to connect you to a missional community. Today, I leave you with this from our passage. God is faithful. He's faithful. Trust him. Trust his word. Trust the family of faith he's given you. We're going to move into our missional communities after our time of response. Um, but I want us to talk about a few questions. And we'll send these out to the missional communities. One, is there anything that you allow to come in the way of putting God's word in your heart? Two, do you find it difficult to truly live in an authentic way with your church community? And if so, why? And then three, what do you think will be the difference in your life if you were able to utilize these two tools in moments of temptation, God's word and his church? I pray God's richest blessings upon your life this week as you strive to live in victory in Christ. God bless you, church family. We love you. We're praying for you. Let me pray, and then we'll move into a time of response. Father, you are so good to us. You are far better to us than we deserve, and we confess that. Jesus, you overwhelm us with what you have done. Your glory, the glory of who you are stands alone but the fact that you came to this earth, that you lived, died, and rose in victory, that is astonishing to us. Help us today. Help us to be courageous enough and faithful enough to trust you, to put your word in our heart, to live honestly with our brothers and sisters in our local church so that you will be made much of. That's our heart's desire today. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. God bless you.